Well, throughout uh, history, the church has battled against a variety of heresies, a variety of false teachers. Uh, in fact, New Testament writers will repeatedly warn churches and, and specifically warn church leadership, church elders and, and pastors to be on guard against those, in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, who will not spare the flock, who will speak twisted things and draw away disciples after them. Many of the New Testament letters, the epistles, um, they contain warning after warning after warning against false teachers. Well, after the, after the close of the New Testament, when that time was complete or the, the gospel, the canon of Scripture was complete and the time period moved on, as the gospel continued to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as the church began to really grow and develop around the world, one of the ways in which church elders, church overseers, would guard against the heresies and, and false teachers was to follow a pattern that we actually see in Acts chapter 15 uh, called the Jerusalem Council. To follow the pattern of Acts 15, to come together in a, in a variety of councils, to search the scriptures, and then essentially write down a, a doctrinal statement based on what they believed the Bible taught. That's what happened in Acts chapter 15. Some of these doctrinal statements would come to be known as creeds or confessions. And then the church would say, essentially, here is a summary of our beliefs. One of the most well-known and, and held to of these statements is the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed makes just this simple statement, one sentence. It's longer than one sentence, but it makes this one sentence in it. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. As Christians, we actually would have, or we should have, a hard time arguing with those four statements, those four attributes of a church. The statement simply means we believe that there is, there is one united church. That it is holy, it is set apart from the world. It is Catholic, and that word just means universal. All Christians, all true Christians, everywhere, that's what it means, of all time, are a part of the church. And it is apostolic. It's built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Over the centuries, um, even a statement as simple as that one, that one line from the Nicene Creed, has been confused and corrupted. By the time uh, the Reformation is in full swing in the, in the early to mid to later 1500s and into the 1600s, there were Roman Catholic, Orthodox in the East, Anabaptist, Lutheran, and Reformed churches. And each considered themselves the one holy, universal, apostolic church. Are things any better today? I would argue that today the situation is even, even more confusing since so many organizations call themselves 
churches. According to Logan County's Chamber of Commerce website, I went on it this week and I looked. There are 84 churches in our county alone. I could actually tell you there's more than that because Redemption Bible Church isn't listed there. Logansville is, so we, are, we used to be on it. That's just according to Logan County Chamber of Commerce website. I didn't count Champaign County, Shelby County, Union County, wherever it is that you live or work. In our own area, and even on that list of so-called churches, we have everything from theological cults, such as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, to a variety of Baptist, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, Brethren churches, and many, many non-denominational churches. We ourselves are not a part of any denomination, but we're part of the, of the fire fellowship. And the I in fire actually stands for independent it's, a, it's the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals Fellowship, which I love that fellowship is in it twice. When we get together, we have fellowships, so it's the Fellowship of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals Fellowship. <clears throat> well, we here are not affiliated with any kind of hierarchical structure like a denomination would have. But we still believe that we're part of the one uh, holy, universal, Catholic, apostolic church. We don't believe that we are the one true church and that all other churches are false. But we do believe that we are a part of the one true church. But, but here's the problem. In fact, the, the Belgic Confession articulates this very well. This is a Reformation confession that was written in the year 1561 when the Reformation was really at its peak. And it says this of our problem even today. This is Article 29 of the Belgic Confession. It says, We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. It goes on, we are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed in among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it, even though they are physically there, speaking to unbelieving so-called church members. But we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church. Did you, did you catch the problem? All sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church. Just because a group of people gather together and claim for themselves to be a church, does that necessarily make them a part of the church? I'll give you an example. Very close to where Chris and I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, in fact, there was a building right across the street from the, the school that I graduated, the Christian school that I graduated high school from. Right across the street in Concord, New Hampshire. It was a big, it looked like a church. It looked like a big old traditional church. A, Mary, uh, a, a lady by the name of Mary Baker Eddy um, founded the Church of Christ Scientist. 
I will tell you that nothing about their name is true. Nothing about their name is true. There is nothing about science. There's nothing about Christ. And it is not a church. The whole thing is a lie, a complete sham. But what makes up a church? These are the questions that the reformers were wrestling with in the 1500s. And I think we, we still need to wrestle with this question today. We still need to hold fast to what is a church. So why is the Reformation so important? Reformation Sunday was last week, Reformation Day, the day in history in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed, the, or at least attached, the 95 Theses to the door at the church at Wittenberg in Germany, kind of kicking off the Reformation. Why is that so important? Why do I talk about it so much? It's because the Reformation changed everything for us. And yet now, 506 years later, we've forgotten everything we learned about salvation, being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've come to believe, I'm speaking in general terms here, Christians have often come to believe, or, or humanity has often come to believe, I am my own authority, and I can do this salvation thing alone. But this particular confession, the Belgic Confession, while, while it is not inspired scripture, it does give us a very good definition of what makes up a church. And it is a summary, I believe, of biblical teaching. And it says this, The marks by which a true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if, a church dis, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. So let me summarize those four marks, and we're going to get into the word of God. A true church rightly preaches the gospel. A true church rightly preaches the gospel, rightly administers the sacraments, the ordinances of baptism and communion. A true church exercises biblical church discipline as needed, and these things um, presume that a true church maintains a biblical church membership. And so this morning, we're going to give ourselves kind of a biblical checkup um, and it's fitting that we should take a look at the Bible's teaching on these things so that we are reminded of our status and our role in the kingdom of God. So let me give you what would be, I guess you could say, my thesis today. It's this. Church membership is a sojourner's declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Church membership is a sojourner's declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 22. Ephesians 2.11. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this, Therefore, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressing, uh, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's just stop and pray here. Father, what we don't know, I pray that you would teach us. What we don't understand, I pray that your spirit would give us understanding. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might behold wonderful things about your word. That we might give glory to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this passage, as we, as we even meditate on this passage, I want to ask you a question, and that is this. Who has ultimate authority? Who has ultimate authority? In, in modern times, there are many who would say the state. Each individual country has ultimate authority. Each sovereign nation generally has ultimate authority over its own citizens. There are times when other sovereign nations um, might unite to wage war against them, to defeat them. For example, to send the message, no, that's wrong, and the rest of the world won't stand for it. But generally, it is recognized that each country has ultimate authority over its own citizens. So if you want to start a business, if you want to start a school, you need the state's permission. Same is true for sports clubs, for community groups, for nonprofits. And usually in our country, uh, this means that we need to fill out some kind of paperwork in order to be legal. Almost always, uh, the paperwork is either tax related or safety related. We have to comply, we're told. What about churches? Do local churches exist by permission of the state? Well, certainly, sometimes we need to fill out paperwork. So, for example, in order to be tax-exempt in the state of Ohio, you, just, you have to have bylaws. That's, that's pretty much it in Ohio. You don't have to be a 501c3. Churches don't. Most people in our culture view churches, however, 
in the same category as a sports club or some other charity organization. In their view, the church is a, is a volunteer association, something that you join in order, to, in order to benefit you in some way and maybe even make you feel good about yourself. Other people view the church as a service provider, like a mechanic or a doctor, a place to get a spiritual tune-up or a checkup, or maybe just a place for a service of a funeral, although that's getting less and less common. But are local churches simply clubs like the YMCA or are they service providers like a counselor that exist by permission of the state specifically? Well, we do believe and the Bible teaches us that we must obey and submit to the laws of our land. And so we need to be clear, the local church does not exist by permission of the state. It exists by the express authorization of Jesus Christ, and He is the ultimate authority, not the state. In fact, He explicitly tells us this. He says in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then He goes on to give His church the authority to spread and to grow. And we know that His church, is, his church advances like a, like a wave that cannot be stopped. We see this all through history. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The boundary lines of nations cannot stop the church, though many try. Executive orders from kings or presidents or prime ministers will not stop the church. Not even as he said, the gates of hell will slow it down. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And if Jesus is the ultimate authority, what does it look like, what does it mean to be citizens of His kingdom? Citizens of the kingdom of God. And how does that translate to the local church, to here in Bellefontaine, Ohio? Well, look at verses 11 and 12 again there of Ephesians 2. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is saying here that for those of us who are Gentiles which is probably most of this room. For those of us who are Gentiles, before your salvation, you were not a part of God's kingdom. You were not a part of God's kingdom. One of the big truths of the Bible is the fact that the Jews, the Israelites, were God's chosen people. In fact, the entire Old Testament is focused on God and his dealings with the Israelites, with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he says to them, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel is a, is a special people. God has chosen Israel. In his sovereignty, he chose Abraham, he chose Isaac, he chose Jacob to be the, the patriarchs of this special people. And when looking at all of the countries that he could have chosen, that he could have set apart for himself, 
It seems odd that he chose Israel. Abram, as he was known, was a nobody. From a place called Ur. He was a nobody. Why did God not choose the English? I mean, there's somebody. Why did God not choose the Irish? Why did God not choose the Egyptians? They were the ancient superpower. Why not Americans? We're a pretty great country. One of the best. He chose Israel. We may not understand why God chose Israel, but he did. We need to see that Israel was not chosen to be the sole beneficiary of God's blessing. They're like a funnel through which the whole world would be blessed. God even says that to Abraham. They were to be, he promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Through you will all the nations be blessed. And so God made them distinct. We've understood this as we've worked through Leviticus. He made them distinct because he wanted the world to look at them. He wanted to keep them separated from the world and the, and the pagan practices of, of those nations around them. He, he, he wanted to keep them separated. He called them out, beginning with Abraham, and he gave them distinctions. He wanted them to be so distinct from all the other nations that the rest of the world would wonder why they were so different. He wanted them to be distinct so that they would not be able to to easily intermix with the other nations. He wanted them to be set apart. And so God gave them differences, really for a couple of reasons. To call the attention of the world to them and to keep them separate from the rest of the world. The Israelites had such strict clothing laws and and dietary laws and marriage laws and worship laws and, and festival laws and the list goes on and on so that they would not fit in with the other cultures, with the societies around them. And that was God's plan. Be holy as I am holy. They were to be so distinct from the rest of the world that the world had to notice them. The world would look at them and say, what is this? What kind of God do they have? Who who has a God like the Israelites? This special status as God's chosen people was meant to be a witness. They were to be a testimony to the world of the one true God. What happened? How did things go so terribly wrong for them? Well, the answer to that, by the time you get to the New Testament, is that instead of seeing themselves as a witness, instead of of them seeing their distinctions as a way to proclaim the glory of God and, and reach people for Him, instead it became an excuse to bring themselves glory. It became an excuse for pride and for selfishness, particularly of the ruling class, the Pharisees. Israel failed. They may have kept the ceremonies and the rituals, but they forgot the morality. They forgot the devotion to Yahweh. It was all external. And so by the time of Christ, they have no message. They forgot the one who had chosen them in the first place. And that's where the Gentiles come in. Look again at verses 11 and 12. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, in this passage, Paul is not talking about the past state of sinfulness specifically. He's already actually covered that in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. He's actually talking about their, their past state of alienation. He says, I want you to remember this. Remember that you used to be alienated from the kingdom of God. Remember that you used to be alienated from Christ. Because remembering makes us a lot more thankful for our salvation. Do you remember a time when you were not a believer? Do you ever imagine what your life would be like without Christ? This is one of the reasons why we regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why we regularly come to the table to to remember Christ's death on the cross for our sins and to proclaim it until he returns. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do that to ourselves and to one another. Now, not only are we as Gentiles or the uncircumcision, as Paul says here, not only are we alienated physically or ethnically from God, we're also alienated spiritually. This is changing pretty quickly, actually, um, over the last several years. But one thing I noticed moving to Logan County in 2012, one thing I noticed about this area is that many people actually claim to believe in God. But they also believe that because they have some sort of, some sort of loose connection to a church, that they're okay. They call themselves Christians, but nothing in their life actually backs up that claim. O occasional church, mem uh, church attendance actually proves nothing about your eternal state. Remember, if you are a Christian, before you submitted to Christ's call on your life, before you repented and believed, you were completely alienated. You were completely cut off from God. And Paul tells us here four ways in which we are alienated, were alienated before Christ. The first thing he says is that we were Christless. We were separated from Christ. Literally, we were without Christ. That means we were without Messiah. We were without a Savior. You had no hope of a Messiah, a Savior. Paul is telling his readers here that because of their alienation, they had no hope of salvation. They had no anticipation of deliverance. No hope of a, coming, of a coming judgment that would make all of the wrongs in the world, all of the wrongs that have been done to your family, to you. No hope that, that something would make that right. No judge who would reward good and punish evil. There was no hope of a day of vengeance of God. And if, if there is no hope 
of a day of judgment, if there is no hope of a day of justice, then this world truly is nothing more than just simply survival of the fittest. The job of judgment would go to the strongest among us. On a national level or an international level, this means that the one with the biggest nukes wins. If there's no hope of, a, of God's wrath being poured out on sin, then the country with the strongest army wins. We were Christless. And then he says we were aliens. Paul writes that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were alienated from God's chosen, God's set apart, God's covenantal people. So in the early days of the, of the Old Testament, God was literally the king of Israel. God had built a theocracy. We're, we're reading about all of that as we've worked through the book of Leviticus. He built a nation, and that nation is the recipient of his blessing. They had received his special love, his special favor. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he said. That nation is in that special arrangement with God. Paul is saying here that we Gentiles were aliens to this. Now, there were a few Gentiles in the Old Testament who entered into that nation and became a part of God's chosen people. We know this because of the genealogy of Christ. Ruth is one. Rahab is another. But overall, the Gentiles did not accept the God of Israel as the one true God. And as a result, they were aliens from him. They had no community. They had no real kingdom, no lasting kingdom. They had no real king. Their king would die, and they would have to replace him with someone else. They were outside of the kingdom of God. Before your salvation, you were aliens separated from the kingdom of God. The third thing Paul points out here is that before your salvation, you were covenantless. Covenantless. Paul says, strangers to the covenants of promise. A person without Jesus Christ is Christless, stateless, and not a part of, he's not a part of God's, God's economy, not a part of God's world, not a, not a citizen of heaven, not a, not a part of God's kingdom, and covenantless. Strangers to the covenants of promise. What's the promise? He's referring to the promises to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. That's the overriding promise, the big picture. And then inside that picture are more covenants, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then, of course, the new covenant. All of these say that God has promised to bless them, to prosper them, to multiply them, to save them, to redeem them, to give them a kingdom, to give them a king. All these amazing promises and covenants that God has made with his people. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, he says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. In Christ. As Gentiles, we were strangers to it all. None of the promises applied to us. We had no promise from God, no, no guarantees, no security, nothing. We had nothing apart from Christ. And it gets worse. The fourth thing that Paul mentions is that we were hopeless. Having no hope in the world. 
If you do not have Christ, if you do not have a Messiah, if you do not have a kingdom to belong to, if you do not have promises to, to hold fast to, then you don't have any hope. You're completely alone in the world with nothing and no one to cling to. No God to help you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. No co-citizens to walk with you, to pray with you, to weep with you when you weep, to rejoice with you when you rejoice. You are without hope and without God in the world, alone, utterly and completely alone. But now comes that word that I have said so many times is among the most important words in all of the New Testament, in all of the Scriptures. The word that I believe we should pay special attention to. But. But. Verse 13. But now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, Jesus steps in and he flips everything upside down. Before, there was no peace. But now in Christ, there is peace. That's why, that's why we start the services the way that we do. I say this a lot. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. But now in Christ there is peace. The separation, the hostility, even between Jew and Gentile, he's saying here, is, is torn down. The kingdom is, is, is being fulfilled. Look at verses 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one, through the, one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All those who claim Christ, all those who have come to him in sola fide, in faith alone for salvation, whether Jew or Gentile, all who come to him, come to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. Gentiles, Gentiles no longer have to become Jewish. We no longer have to walk through the commands and the ordinances of, of the Old Testament in order to be reconciled to God. In fact, the only way to become citizens of the kingdom of God is through the cross of Jesus Christ, solus Christus, in Christ alone. Listen, what Paul is saying here is that it doesn't matter if you were born into it. The only way to enter the kingdom of, uh, is through faith in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. The same is true for us. You can't be born into the kingdom. The only way is you must be born again through faith alone in Christ alone. You have to enter through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. By grace, you have been saved Sola gratia, grace alone. And that brings us peace. Real, everlasting peace. Peace with God. 
Verse 17 says that Jesus came and preached peace. That actually means that he came and evangelized priests. He, he, he gospeled peace. He proclaimed the good news of peace. Our world is clamoring for peace. Politicians are calling for peace. Jesus came and he brought it. Right at the very start, before he could even physically, humanly speak, at his birth, the angels proclaimed on God's behalf, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Jesus came and he brought, or he, he, actually, he actually was peace, is peace. He unites all believers to himself and to each other. God is a God of peace. And through Jesus' work on the cross, all who believe have been brought together to him, as verse 18 says here, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have been united together with him. And as a result of that, look at, look at what Paul says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are now fellow citizens. Paul finishes this passage about the unity that is found in Christianity, unity even between Jew and Gentile, by essentially painting us a picture in three different ways. And this picture illustrates his point of of how both Jew and Gentile have been united together with him. So look at these three pictures. He says, first of all, he calls us fellow citizens. He then calls us the household of God. And then down in verse 21, he calls us a holy temple. C consider those three images, fellow citizens, the household of God, and a holy temple. I want to look at each of those really briefly. First thing he says in verse 19 is that Christians are fellow citizens with the saints. Paul essentially says, now therefore, as a result of everything that I have pointed out, everything we've just established, as a result of Jesus' work on the cross and the faith that we have in him, because we are all one, because we've been made one in Christ, because we have access and peace with God, we are no longer strangers and aliens. And that word for, for stranger there means someone who, is, who, someone who is an outcast, someone who is wretched, who is vile, who is rotten, the, the, the keep them away type of person. Someone you would not want to invite into your home. Someone you would look at your ring camera and say, I, I'm not getting the door. But that's no longer true. If you are a Christian, you are now fellow citizens with the saints. We're no longer aliens or strangers or sojourners. We are citizens of the kingdom. 
And as citizens, we enjoy all of the rights and benefits and privileges of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, second, he he calls us members of the household of God. So not only are we citizens of his kingdom, but we're actually part of God's family. We're not just strangers who, are, uh, who have been naturalized citizens allowed to be in the kingdom. We're part of God's family. We've been adopted as his very children, fellow heirs, given a seat at the king's table. We're in God's family. And then third, Paul tells us that we are a holy temple. We're a holy temple with Christ as our cornerstone. It's Christ who's, who, who's holding the whole, the whole thing together. Look again at verses 21 and 22. Speaking of Christ, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The building is still under construction. That's what that means. This new community of God is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. And God already dwells in His temple even though it is still growing. Our status in Jesus Christ is that we are fellow citizens of His kingdom. We are members of the household of God, part of God's family. And we are a holy temple. That's... It's been said, and I think this is a good way to look at this, it's been said that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. See, our king has come, and we wait for him to return. Our king is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and we wait to see him face to face, reigning for eternity. If, if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, repented of your sins and believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you're part of the kingdom. But the kingdom is not yet because one day Jesus will return to judge, to, to destroy sin and death, that justice will prevail, to reign that we might see him face to face. Until then, we seek refuge in his outposts, his embassies. We seek refuge in the church. That's what a local church is. The local church is a place on earth where the citizens of the kingdom of God can right now, at this very moment, that they can come and find asylum, find recognition, find family. The gathering of the local church is a a glimpse. It's an imperfect one, we acknowledge. It's an imperfect glimpse, but it is a glimpse of the eternal kingdom. And so as members of a local church, citizens now enjoy the rights and benefits and obligations of citizenship, even though the kingdom is not yet fully realized, even though we're, we're living in a foreign land, so to speak. So we, Redemption Bible Church, we must remember to look at ourselves in this way as an embassy of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, 
as an outpost here in this fallen land, ready to welcome in other sojourners. Because we're strangers in a strange land. We're aliens and sojourners here while we wait for Jesus' return. The church is more than this. But we must start here. Because Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't leave us to govern ourselves and to declare ourselves to be God's citizen, to be God's children. The church, rather, is how the world sees the gospel of Jesus Christ being worked out in our lives, the lives of Christians. Many organizations claim to be part of the church, yet they refuse to preach the gospel. They, they treat matters of, of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper flippantly. They refuse to administer church discipline on sinning members, but they, they've made themselves their own spiritual authority. But we believe that the church exists as Christians gather together to proclaim and hear God's word and then to affirm one another in the faith. And I, and I praise God that I get to be a part of this church. I, I praise God that I get to be a part of this church church that is constantly making the gospel visible in the lives of her members. I see it during the week. You see it. Praise God that I get to be a part of his church and this church. A biblically faithful church is an outpost for the kingdom of God. We are a, a lighthouse, a city on a hill, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for sinners, whom I am the foremost. Pray with me. Father, thank you. I thank you that, that you have assembled a people together who take your word seriously who love one another, spur one another on, pray for and encourage one another, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that we can sit and have lunch together as brothers and sisters. But Lord, I thank you that you have called us together to be our God and we to be your people. I pray that you continue the work that you have started in this church and have continued to faithfully do. I thank you for each and every member of this church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.